A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to our latest episode of Talking France, a weekly podcast by The Local. Is the long battle over pension reform in France finally coming to an end? Everything could depend on the nine wise men and women who sit on a very important council. We'll find out more about them, what they might have to say, and what could happen next in the fight over pension reform. One person you'll certainly want to get to know if you live in France is your local mayor, at least if you live in a small village or perhaps if you get married. But just how powerful are France's 35,000 mayors? And what exactly do they do? It's April, the sun is shining, the flowers are blooming, so that means it's tax declaration season in France. We'll find out some ways you can save on your French tax bill and also some interesting perks the French taxman offers in return for your money. We will also look at the risk of more devastating wildfires in southwest France this year and hear about the government's new plan to tackle them. We'll find out why Paris is called the City of Light and learn the nicknames of some other French cities. I'm your host, Ben MacPartland. And I'm going to do it on my own this week, guys, if you don't mind. All right, good luck. No, that would be a terrible idea. I will, of course, be joined by the engine room of the local France editor, Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield and politics expert John Litchfield. Guys, it was Easter at the weekend. I drove up to northern France past Berck-sur-Mer, which we talked about last week, one of these strange-sounding place names in France. Since then... You've written an article covering some of the more weird and unfortunate place names in France. Anus does exist. You fact-check that one. Yes, yes, it does exist. It's in Burgundy and it's just as hilarious in French because the word for the body part is the same, although it's pronounced anus. Okay, as does, I've discovered, crapon, bitch, misery, piss. All these place names exist in France. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the town of Bitch got its um, its town Facebook page was taken down by Facebook because they thought it was an offensive word. So that's definitely real. Interesting. Thanks, Emma. Moving on to grown-up matters, Jen. You were away this weekend in tour, but you had some trouble getting back due to pension strikes or the impact of pension strikes. Tell us about it. Yeah, I did. So I was not taking public transport. We rented a car and we were driving back into Paris. And, you know, at the end of renting a car, you're supposed to fill up the gas tank or the you're supposed to fill up on petrol, as you British people say. (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) And it turned out that every single gas station we went to in the Paris area had no SP95. So we drove around in circles for about an hour and eventually decided to just give the car back with about a quarter tank of gas to the uh, rental agency and unfortunately received a pretty hefty fine of 170 euro. So that was not so fun. (laughs) That's a tale listeners should take heed of if they're planning a road trip around France. There are still some shortages, particularly in the Paris area. So be sure to check out the website local.fr for the latest news on fuel shortages. And that, of course, guys, brings us to Thursday, the 12th day of nationwide strikes and protests against President Emmanuel Macron's pension reforms. That's the 12th day of strikes and protests since January the 19th. On Thursday, there will be travel disruption. Flights and trains will be affected. There's been new calls for refuse collection strikes in Paris. There may be school closures. This latest day of strikes is timed to take place the day before a very important ruling from the Conseil Constitutionnel or Constitutional Council. Jen, just tell us a bit about this. Yes, so these wise men and women, there 
are three women and six men, or les sages, as they're called in French, are the members of France's Constitutional Council, and on Friday, they are expected to make a very important ruling regarding Macron's pension reform. So they'll be determining whether the law, which we should remind listeners was pushed through Parliament without a vote in the Assemblée Nationale, using the Article 49.3, whether or not that is constitutional or not. Right, and before we ask John Litchfield, our politics expert, to give us some predictions on what could happen next. Who are these Sages du Palais Royal, as they're called, Jen, or Sages de la Rue Montpensier, where the street in Paris where they are based? And what is the Constitutionnel exactly? So the Constitutional Council is basically France's constitutional court. It's the highest authority on all constitutional matters. The French Constitutional Council's role is to scrutinize new laws and decrees after they have been passed by Parliament, but before they are officially signed into law by the President. The Constitutional Council was first created by the Constitution for the Fifth Republic, which was actually in 1958, so not so long ago. There are nine members, or SAGE, as we've mentioned, and they are appointed to non-renewable nine-year terms. And every three years, three members leave and three new members are added. In terms of who is chosen, the Sage tend to be former lawyers, business people, senior civil servants, and retired politicians. The best known names in the current group are two former prime ministers, Laurent Fabius, who's the president of the council now, and Alain Juppé. In terms of how they're chosen, it's not just the French president who's involved, which might be a bit surprising to the American listeners who are familiar with our Supreme Court. It's very different in France. The president appoints three people. Then the head of the Assemblée Nationale appoints another three, and the head of the Senate appoints another three. It is the president, however, who chooses the head of the council itself. But ultimately, the goal is for the council to be independent. Okay, so these Saj, they're not political or they're not meant to be, although like you said, they include former prime ministers. They also include all former presidents who automatically become members of the council, although most don't actually choose to sit on the council, like former president Francois Hollande. Jen, what is their job exactly then? So their job is ensuring that these new laws and decrees conform to the values and principles of France's constitution. So this is why sometimes you have a law that's passed in one form, but it ends up looking a bit different when it's written down into the statute book. So, for example, during COVID, when the French government tried to introduce more regulations before summer 2020, there was an attempt to add a rule outlawing private gatherings of more than 10 people. Now, the Constitutional Council found this part to be unconstitutional. So this was changed in the law, and it ended up focusing more on public rather than private spaces, and the government recommended, instead of requiring that private gatherings stay below 10 people. In the case of pension reform, the Saj have three really important decisions to make. The first one, is the law raising the pension age to 64 constitutional? The second, was the procedure for how the law was passed constitutional? And the third, whether or not to approve a request for a referendum on the subject, which was filed by left-wing opposition parties. Now, the referendum part is quite complicated, and it has several steps to it. And ultimately, if they rule in favor of it, we could still be talking about pension reform a year from now. Now seems like a good time to bring in our French politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us again from Normandy. I asked John, what could happen next in the battle over pension reform, depending on what ruling the Conseil Constitutionnel go for, and why President Emmanuel Macron has decided to stir up a huge hornet's nest at the moment. Well, if they pass the pension reform, Macron has then the right to sign it or promulgate it, which I'm pretty sure he'll do. He has a possibility of deciding not to, and that's been done before by Chirac when there were huge protests against uh, another law. Macron, I don't think, is likely to, to do that, so he will promulgate it. And there will no doubt then be another kind of cloudburst of, of violence from, from the usual suspects. 
I think that what's interesting is that there, there will be a split in the uh, trade union common front, which has been extraordinarily united until now. And the CFDT and the more moderate unions are saying, well, we accept the Constitutional Council validity of its decision, uh, the democratic decision, we don't like this law, but we can't uh, keep on striking against it once that decision is made. The more militant unions, I think, will uh, try to carry on with strikes, blockages, vandalism of various kinds. Um, So the dispute will rumble on. I think if it's passed by the Constitutional Council, it will gradually fade as we approach the summer, but not not immediately. There will continue to be uh, protests and and strikes of a limited kind. Okay, and then moving on, it's rare for the Constitutional Council to completely strike out a law, but they may find grounds to reject this on the way it was passed. You know, we've talked a lot about the use of the 49.3. John, what will happen if the Constitutional Council reject the reform? Well, as, as you say, it's quite rare for that to happen. I think that the Constitutional Council has existed since 58, 59, 64 years, and has only ever once completely rejected a law. I think that was in 1971. It does sometimes censor, i.e. pick up little bits of the law and say, no, you can't have that, and, and pull them out, and then they can't go through, and that's what it probably will do on this occasion. If it rejects the law completely, it's dead. Basically, there is no appeal against the Constitutional Council. There's nothing the government can do except bring forward another law, especially if, as they say, which is the only grounds on which they're likely to reject it. I don't think it's unconstitutional to have a pension age of 64. Uh, It could be unconstitutional to have done all the different wheezes the government did to get this through. So if it's rejected on those grounds, it's possible for the government to go back and start with a new law and, and try and go through the procedure again. That happening is not very likely, I think. So essentially, the, the law will be dead. It's a humiliation for Macron. Maybe it's a relief for Macron, in a sense. It sort of ends this, this unfortunate chapter, and he can try and move on with other things. I think either way, uh, the next four years, the final four years of his political career, in a way, four years of his mandate is going to be very, very difficult domestically for him to get much else done. Now, John, there's also a chance of a referendum on the pension age in France taking place. Just explain how this might happen. Well, this is a kind of joker uh, that's um, going to be present on Friday as well, that the Constitutional Council has to make two decisions. One, whether this law is constitutional or not. Secondly, whether or not an attempt by left-wing MPs uh, to have a referendum under a new structure which was created in 2008 and has never had a referendum before. They've asked for a referendum, which is actually quite a severe referendum. It actually says that the pension age in France should never for anyone be more than 62. In other words, within sense, people would have to retire or be allowed to retire even earlier than they do now in some cases. So that referendum has to get quite a large number of signatories from the House and from the Assembly and, and the Senate already has those. If it's approved by the Constitutional Council, which it may or may not be, it has to get 10%, signatures of 10% of the uh, registered electors in the country, which is approaching 5 million people. It's quite possible you could do that, but they have to be verified one by one by the Constitutional Council within nine months, checked against uh, identity cards and so on. In any case, the referendum can't happen until the summer of next year. And <laughs> that would then be something like nine months after the present law, the, the Macron law, the law increasing the pension age to 64, had already taken effect. And if the referendum was then passed, you would have two laws in France saying different things, one saying that the pension age could not be more than 62, and one saying that it will rise gradually to 64. That's a constitutionally unprecedented situation. And that would have to be sorted out by, guess who, the Constitutional Council. There's still a few twists and turns in this reform yet, John. Just a final question on Macron himself. He stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest recently with his comments about EU foreign policy not 
uh, shouldn't follow the US foreign policy towards a potential conflict with China. John, is this Macron diverting attention from his domestic crisis? What was he up to here? Uh, was he trying to distract? Not distract, I think, but I think he is looking for other ways to count. You know, he's fearing, I think, that the domestic agenda will be pretty blocked for the next four years, as I said, and therefore he, he's wanting to assert himself where he has almost independent powers over diplomatic foreign European policy. So maybe he was tempted in that way. I think this was a very strange incident. You know, I'm not sure that we know the full extent of this yet. What is interesting is that Macron said that, you know, the Europeans shouldn't be interested in other people's quarrels like US and China and Taiwan. Well, is that other people's quarrels? I mean, obviously, it is one of the great flashpoints in the world. Macron is going around telling the Africans that they should be interested in the Ukraine conflict and they should be on our side. You can't then go and tell people that the Europeans shouldn't be interested in the possibility of China invading Taiwan. It's a very strange thing for him to have said. Um, no, a lot of what else he said about the, Europe's, the Europeans developing their own strategic autonomy, diplomatically and economically, makes perfectly good sense. And it's something he's argued for before. Why did he say it then, just as he, after he'd seen President it seemed like a kind of going away present to Xi and, and a sort of uh, almost saying, Xi, do what you want uh, with Taiwan. We're not going to be getting involved, whatever the Americans say. Possibly Macron misspoke. He has a habit of saying these things, you know, in, in, in interviews, which he hasn't thought through fully. There is a suggestion that this is part of some kind of quid pro quo or deal with the Chinese, that, that Macron got more out of China uh, than it seems when he was there. And he got some sort of promise from Xi that they would not be giving arms to the Russians, which would change the conflict in Ukraine dramatically. And as a quid pro quo, Macron is sort of somewhat taking the Chinese side or saying he would stand aside from and the Europeans should stand aside from the conflict in Taiwan. That's a very dangerous thing to have done. Did the Americans sort of tacitly approve it? I don't know. It's being suggested that there is more behind this than it seems. Otherwise, it was a very, very strange interview that Macron gave. Now, moving on. There are almost 35,000 of them in France. They can be useful people to know, especially if you intend to get married. I'm talking, of course, about French mayors. They are integral to France, as we find out shortly. But they can also end up in hot water, can't they, Emma? They can, yeah. There are two mayors who've made the news this week, both of them for bad reasons. So, Gaël Pedrao, who runs the town of Saint-Étienne, which is quite close to Lyon, he's been charged with attempting to blackmail a political rival using a secretly recorded sex tape. Meanwhile, Hubert Falco, who's the mayor of Toulon, down on the Mediterranean coast, he's appeared before a tribunal charged with improper use of public funds. In what the French media have quite hilariously dubbed l'affaire frigo, the affair of the fridge. He's accused of eating lunch in a subsidised workplace canteen that he was not entitled to use and also charging his laundry to town funds. And I should probably add that both mayors deny the charges against them and say that they're the victim of smear campaigns by their political rivals. But obviously, look, we're not going to get into whether they're guilty or not. That's for the courts to decide. But I think the fact that both of these cases have been making big headlines in France this week points to the power that French mayors wield and how important they are. Indeed. Now, they're not the only two French mayors who have landed in hot water over the years, but just tell us a bit more about French mayors in general, Emma. Well, there's a huge variety within the roles, and they go right from the mayors of cities like Paris, Marseille, Bordeaux, who oversee a huge budget, employ thousands of staff, right to the mayors of sort of tiny little villages or hamlets of no more than a dozen people. So, starting with the biggest, the mayor of Paris is responsible for 2.8 million people. They oversee a budget of 9 billion euro and employ 52 
2,000 people. And the power that a city mayor wields are considerable, and they can literally reshape a city, which is something that we're actually seeing right now under the, the current mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, who's been overseeing quite a radical transport transformation in the city by sort of increasing car-free zones, installing a huge network of cycle routes. Paris looks very different to how it did when she starts, and that's kind of a testament to the power that she has as a mayor. And being the mayor of a big city, it means being responsible for a wide range of different things, like from transport to policing, managing a budget. And because of this, it's regarded as quite a good sort of training ground for future presidents. Presidents Nicolas Sarkozy, Jacques Chirac, François Mitterrand and Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, they were all mayors before they became presidents. Anne Hidalgo, who we just talked about, she ran for president, very unsuccessfully, it must be said, in 2022. And the current mayor of Le Havre, Edouard Philippe, he is widely tipped to make a presidential run in 2027, the next presidential election. Indeed. Now, they're the mayors of the big cities, but most of France's 35,000 mayors are obviously in charge of little villages or communes. We got an email this week. I don't know if you spotted it from one man who was telling us about the trees that fell down over his road. It completely blocked the road and he didn't know what to do. Completely stuck until the local mayor turned up with a chainsaw and chopped up the trees and cleared the road. Village mayors have an entirely different kind of role, do they, Emma? They really do, yeah. I don't think Anna Delgo gets her chainsaw out very often when a tree comes down in Paris. But but yeah, this is absolutely typical of how the mayor operates in small villages. The local spoke to a group of village mayors in 2018 and they told us these kind of stories about how they got involved with things like uh, one guy told us he'd had to clear the road after a landslide on Christmas Eve because no one else was working. We heard about they were rounding up stray sheep. Someone else uh, was teaching the older people in the village how to use the internet. So it's a very hands-on role, but that's all in addition to their actual role, which is defined as they enforce decisions made by local councils. They oversee all the staff employed by the mairie. And even in a really small village, they would usually have a sort of combined gardener, handyman person to maintain the public space and usually a secretary as well. Obviously, in bigger places, they have a larger staff. They organise elections. They're responsible for maintaining public order. So they'd be doing things like handling complaints, dealing with neighbour disputes, that kind of thing. They maintain civil records. So if you need your birth and marriage certificates, that will be by the mairie. And they marry people, of course. If you get married in France, the ceremony at the mairie will be conducted usually by the mayor or maybe their assistant in a, a larger place. And they'll be there in their fabulous trickle or sash of office marrying you. And I mean, on a more sort of informal basis, in small places, the mayor is usually an absolute fountain of local knowledge. They know everyone. They know everything that's going on. They understand all of the local sort of various local laws, bylaws, planning processes. So if you're a newcomer in a small village, it really is a great idea to go along and just introduce yourself to the mayor. And that's particularly the case if you're buying property, because the mayor will just be an invaluable source of information for you about doing all these processes you need to do, like connecting up utilities. They'll be able to guide you through all all of the local planning rules in place because these change quite a lot in France depending on where you are so if you're in a historic zone there might be restrictions on what kind of changes you can make to the exterior of your property there might even be rules on what colour you can paint your shutters mountain regions have different building regulations for safety things there's all these kind of things and your mayor will just know all of them and they do actually get some money for this role Emma it's more like a, an allowance they call it I believe it depends on how many inhabitants there are in the village is it less than 500 can get around 650 euros and the bigger cities they receive about over eight thousand euros monthly now there are some villages in france emma that have a mayor but no inhabitants tell us about them yeah yeah there are there are six what they call memorial villages in france that have a mayor but no people the 
these are all up in the northeast of the country. They're in the Verdun region, and they are villages that were destroyed in World War One. They're maintained as a sort of permanent memorial. You can go and look round them, but they each have a mayor. Uh, in that case, the mayor is appointed by decree by the local prefecture, and their role is essentially a sort of more of a an upkeep and maintenance one to keep these villages preserved as the memory of the war. Really interesting stuff. Thanks for that, Emma. Now, nerves are already on edge in southwestern France, which was hit by devastating forest fires last summer. Local officials have been nagging the government to come up with a plan to avoid similar devastation this coming summer. There's already a drought in France. Emma, what's the latest on this? Yeah, well, yesterday there was an announcement in Gironde, uh, which is the département around Bordeaux in the southwest. There was an announcement of 150 million to plant trees, and this is basically the first tranche of government funding that's going towards replanting the areas that burned last summer. In total, 72,000 hectares of land burned in France last year. That's an area that's seven times the size of Paris, so we're wow. talking massive, massive mm. fires. It was an unprecedented year for forest fires across the whole of Europe, but in France particularly. And over the summer, 19,700 111 wildfires or forest fires were recorded. The biggest were in the southwest, which is why they were doing this announcement yesterday in Gironde. Down there, there was an enormous area of forest fire near the, the Dune de Pilate, which is quite a famous tourist site on the southwest coast. But what was really striking to me about these fires is where they were, because forest fires in the south of France in the summer are not that uncommon. But last year, we saw them really all over the country. They were in the south, obviously, but they were also in Jura and Isère on the east border of France, and Morbihan up in Brittany. According to the Interior Ministry, 90 out of mainland France's 96 departments recorded at least one forest fire. And at the height of the fires, 10,000 firefighters per day were involved in this forest fire operation. Mm. There were 19 planes dropping water on them and firefighters from Greece, Italy and Sweden were all drafted in to help France. It was a really massive operation. Mm, Yeah, this is really bringing back memories of last summer, you know, where so many people were caught up in them. There were evacuations of, of villages and towns. Tourists were also caught up in it. And I remember there was the smell of smoke. Didn't we get it in Paris last year that was from the southwest fires? Yeah, we did. I mean, even in Bordeaux, which is actually quite a long way away from where the big fire were, there were these amazing pictures that people were posting of this sort of haze of smoke mm. over the uh, over the town. It looked really weird, quite unearthly, yeah. But yes, there was a couple of days where we could even smell it up here in Paris. And we've already talked about, you know, France facing a drought this spring and this summer. What's the outlook for summer, Emma, in terms of fires? Locals must be pretty worried down there. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, long-range weather forecasts are not very accurate, but the latest modelling from the weather forecast is predicting another very hot summer this year. Temperatures, on average, two degrees above seasonal norms and an increased chance of heat waves. Like I say, that you know, long-range forecasts have their problems, but it seems like it's going to be another hot one. Forest fires are basically caused by hot, dry conditions. Large parts of France are already on a drought warning, and it seems like it's going to be another hot summer, so unfortunately that is just the kind of conditions that wildfire loves. Spain, over the border, has already recorded its first forest fire of the year, that was last week, so this is why, you know, there's a lot of concern. So the government has kind of got its forest fire plan, as well as the $150 for replanting trees. They've also earmarked $180 for a sort of extra firefighting operation, including extra planes, Uh, and that was what they were announcing yesterday. And it it does seem like the, um, the locals were reasonably happy with what they heard, Patrick Davé, who's the mayor of La Teste de Bouche, which is the, the commune in Gironde most affected by the fires, he said he was relieved after what he'd heard of the plans. He told France Info, I don't want there to be any fires, but I think at least now we're prepared, we're warned and we have the means to fight them, including the extra firefighting planes. So I'm relieved. Mm-hmm. So 
it does seem like a lot of fires will be happening, but hopefully they'll be a bit more prepared to deal with them this year. Let's hope so. Thanks very much for that, Emma. Now, Emma, Jen, I have the pleasure of declaring tax declaration season open in France. It's an exciting time of the year here. We get to fill in forms, crunch some numbers, well, fill in forms online. For me, it's probably one of the best times of the year to be in France, Emma. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very French time of the year, yeah. We get to uh, fill in forms and pay loads of taxes, both quite French occupations. We do pay a lot of tax in France, but the taxes allows the French state to offer residents all sorts of cool stuff, but indeed, we'll get on to that indeed. later. So the reason that we're talking about it is, as you just said, tax declaration season is now open. If you live in France, you will almost certainly have to do the declaration, even if you're a salaried employee and your tax is deducted from your salary at source, even if you have no income in France, for example, pensioners with a pension paid from another country. And this is quite an often misunderstood part of the system, but basically everybody living here has to do the declaration, but just doing the declaration doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get a tax bill. In fact, the government might even give you money, depending on your personal circumstances. If you're not a resident in France, but you do have income here, then you may also need to make the declaration. So this is something to watch out for for second homeowners. If you rent out your property in France for part of the year, you have income in France, so you may need to make the declaration. Okay, now look, much of it is online these days the tax declaration isn't actually that difficult especially if you've been here a few years but there are some things Emma that foreigners should look out for yeah the one that catches a lot of people out is that you must declare all of your non-French bank accounts on your declaration what um yeah (laughs) carry on this is taking notes um, now This applies to everybody. It's not just foreigners, but obviously foreigners are more likely to have a bank account left over in their home country. You don't need to declare your French accounts and you don't need to tell the French taxman how much you have in your accounts outside of France. But you do need to declare any accounts that are outside of France, even if they're dormant or they have no money in them. So like if you have an old account left behind in the UK or the US that's got like 1750 in it, you still have to declare that. And this bit of the tax form, it's quite easy to miss because it's kind of buried in with the bit about income from stocks and shares and company dividends and other financial products. So you might think that doesn't really apply to you. But failure to declare a foreign account attracts a fee of between €1,500 and €10,000 per account. So you could end up with quite a big bill if you have a couple of of non-French accounts. And unfortunately, because of new money laundering regulations, banks around the world talk to each other a lot more than they used to. So you're quite likely to get caught out. Very important advice here, Emma. Yes, yes it is. Likewise, all of your non-French income must be declared. If you've already paid tax on it in your home country, you likely won't have to pay any more tax on it in France if your country has a dual taxation agreement with France, which most countries do, but you still have to declare it. And talking of foreign income, there's a bit of bad news here for Brits. If you have income from the UK that is not a pension, for example, rental income from a property in the UK, you're now paying social charges at the higher rate for non-EU income, thanks to, yay, Brexit. So you're now paying social charges at 17.2% as opposed to 7.5% for EU income. So you'll be paying more. Wow, okay. They're the bad bits, Emma. What about the good bits? The tax breaks. France is quite good at giving them, isn't it? Yes, yeah, there are actually quite a lot of tax breaks for a lot of things that would affect, you know, everyday people. So this is kind of why you be getting money, might be getting money back, particularly if you're a salaried employee. So if you're an employee, obviously your taxes get deducted at source, but then at tax time you tell them about the breaks and that's why you might get some money back. So, for example, if you employ a cleaner or any other kind of domestic help, you can claim a tax rebate on that, providing that person is properly 
registered and you're not paying them in cash under the table. Parents can get quite a lot of rebates on childcare related costs. So if you have a childminder, a nanny or maybe creche fees, you can claim money back for them. And if you give to charity, you can also claim a rebate on the cost of your donations if you have a proper record of these. So that would usually apply if you're doing like a monthly direct debit to a charity, something you have a record of. If you're just putting some cash in a charity bucket, that's a bit harder. Right, you can't just declare that. You can't just say, I've given hundreds of euros to good causes this year and put down a random amount. You need proof. You do actually need proof, yeah. Right. You can't just randomly pull a figure out of thin air. Right, okay, fair enough. Jen, you have some interesting context about French taxes for us. So it's fair to say that France is a high-tax country. In fact, almost half of France's revenues and GDP come from taxation. In 2021, France moved down from the most taxed country in the EU, so to the second most, falling behind Denmark. But when you look at how France spends its GDP, about 31% of the funds go towards social spending, uh, which is quite a bit higher than the OECD average of 20%. And whether you're an employee, uh, in which case you're usually taxed at the source, or if you're self-employed, in which case you usually pay a tax bill at the end of the year, um, your deductions will fall into two categories. One is social security deductions, and the other is impôt sur le revenu, which is income tax. Now, Income tax in France is actually not that high, from 11% to 30% unless you earn more than 78,000 euro a year, but social charges are high. And these include things like santé, health, retraite, your pension, Sécurité sociale, social security, and assurance chômage, unemployment insurance. Okay, so yes, we certainly pay a lot of taxes or social charges in France, but there are also quite a few perks, freebies that come with it. Jen, uh, obviously leaving aside stuff like healthcare and education, which are kind of state funded, what else does France offer? Pick out a few things for us. There are plenty of schemes. So one is the Culture Pass or the Pass Culture, which is meant to promote knowledge of and access to cultural offerings by giving adolescents between the ages of 15 and 18 300 euro a year to spend on art, music, theater, and more. It has been called the uh, manga pass by some because a lot of kids like to spend it on uh, on anime. <laughs> but you know, it's it's culture. For salaried adults, there is also the Compte Personnel Formation, which is funding that is acquired each year that can be put toward professional training and learning. And you can use the money to help pay for language courses or your next level of exams. If you work in healthcare, for example, for small business owners, you might take an Excel class uh, or a management one. There are more practical options like driving lessons. Um, sometimes you do need your boss to sign off just attesting that there is some relation between the course and your profession. But if you wanted to totally switch careers, say go back and become a pastry chef, uh, you could use it for the retraining. And uh, then there's also a handy program called Chèque Vacances, which is basically based on the essential French ideal that holidays are essential. <laughs> and France's holiday voucher system, it was launched in 1982, and it's intended to help lower income families, young adults, and older people on pensions to be able to afford an annual holiday. Now, these are just three examples. There are actually loads of things like this uh, to help out other people that are on lower incomes as well. Emma, you've ever taken advantage of any of these perks? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think I've actually talked about this before, but yes, I've used the uh, the personal training account, the Confirmation, to get some French classes, and I'm just about to start another one. I'm, I'm tackling the, the heady world of C1 level French. Excellent. It's going to be hard. Excellent. Well, happy tax declaration season to all our listeners. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Emma. Now, moving on finally to our reader question. It's a fairly simple one, but I do not know the answer. Emma, why is Paris called the City of Lights? Please tell me. 
It's a great question. Actually, it doesn't really have a very simple answer. So uh, La Ville Lumière, the, the City of Lights, is usually Paris, although I have seen Bordeaux and Lyon also trying to claim this title, but I think it's fair to say it's mostly Paris. And you will find two different explanations from French people about the origins of this. Some people say it's because Paris was an early adopter of gas street lighting at the beginning of the 19th century, so it was literally a, a city of lights. Others say it's kind of a less literal nickname and is in fact a reference to the Enlightenment, the philosophical and political movement which blossomed in Paris from the 18th century. When I went to the Musée Canavillet, which is the excellent museum on the history of Paris, they said it was a reference to the Enlightenment. So I think maybe that's more the official version, but certainly you'll hear both. And either way, it's quite a modern nickname, really, considering that Paris has been here since well before the Romans arrived. I just thought it was because they left the lights on at the Eiffel Tower. Uh, no, no, it's not that. And also the uh, the Eiffel Tower lights are turned off a bit earlier now, of mm, course. You'll remember are, yeah. for energy saving. Mm. Okay, there you have it. And what about other French towns? Anyone got any, any more nicknames for yes, French towns? Yes, I, uh, I have loads. In fact, I'm putting together a quiz to go on the site, so I'm going to make you play it. So, oh, uh, go on then. See how we go. Okay. Give us a few. Can you name these cities from their nicknames? Okay. So, La Ville Rose. La Ville Rose, the pink town. Uh, pink town, yeah, I know that one. It's Toulouse. It is but Toulouse. I don't know why. Ah, okay, yes. It is it is Toulouse, yes. Um, and it's a reference to building materials. Oh. So, like, most of the sort of old French cities, you know, they're, they're big old buildings, the cathedrals, whatever, are mm. made out of stone. In Toulouse, they're made out of brick, local brick, so they are reddish colour. And, you know, if you go down there in the nice sunny evening, which Toulouse has a lot of being mm. in the southwest, they sort of glow a really nice pinky colour. So that's why it's called that. Interesting. Go on, then. Uh, going for another colour one, uh, do you know where La Ville Blanche is? La Ville Blanche, the white town, the white city. Uh, no, I'm going to just have a wild guess and say, like, Montpellier. I didn't know this one either, actually. Yeah, I looked it up. Uh, it's La Rochelle. OK, what's the explanation? Well, the uh, I looked it up on the town website, and the um, the town website said it's thanks to, and I quote, nos amis anglo-saxons. Oh, right, um, yeah. They mean the English, yeah. uh, who were there in the Middle Ages, but it's really just because there are limestone cliffs mm. near the town, and the, um, the harbour walls in the town are built out of local limestones, so they're kind of white as well. Interesting. So the pink town, the white town? Next one, not a colour. La Cité Corsaire. Corsaire. I have no idea. I don't even know what that means. It's the same word in French and English, but it's quite old-fashioned in English. Yeah. No, I have no idea. Go no. on. So a Corsair is an old-fashioned word for pirate. Uh, ah. So basically this is the pirate city. And that is Saint-Malo. Um, ah, in, in Brittany. The, yes. Okay. Uh, apparently in the 17th century, the town was a base for pirates, privateers, who would demand that passing Dutch and Spanish ships paid for safe passage through the waters off northern France. Ah, did you know that, Jen? You've been to Saint-Malo? Yeah, I didn't know that. I feel yeah, like I feel the water definitely looked a bit choppy, though, so it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> This one I think you will know, actually, if you've ever been there, certainly. La Cité des Papes. Oh, yeah, I know that one. Cité of Popes. Yes. Is Avignon. It is. Yes. Yes, because... Why? Yeah, I don't know the why bit. <laughs> uh, because the papacy briefly moved to Avignon uh, yeah, in the okay. um, in the Middle Ages. So we Avignon had... is south in, in Provence, yeah? Yes, exactly, okay. southeast. So there were seven popes and two anti-popes who were in, uh, in Avignon. Yeah, I had no idea what an anti-pope was either, but apparently it's a thing. All right, fair enough. Right, that's it. Uh, one more, want... come on, one more. One more? Okay, uh, okay, this is a good one. How about La Capitale de Gaulle? Oh, capital de Gaulle. I'm going to go with, I don't know, Orléans. Orléans? Uh, okay, why? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just looking at a map of France over here and I just picked it out. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually Lyon. Ah, okay. uh, because Lyon was the capital of the sort of 
the province we roughly know as France now during the Roman period, which is when the, the Gauls tribes were active in France. Although it's a bit of a misnomer because the Gauls were a Celtic tribe and they lived all across Europe. So in the parts of it that are now France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Germany, even parts of Italy had Gauls in them. But mm. they're quite associated with France these days, okay. uh, mostly thanks to Asterix, of course. I know Leon as the capital of gastronomy, no? Is that another name for it? Yeah, definitely. That's its kind of informal nickname. That Good it's grub. The, it's the culinary capital of France, yeah. yeah that's, where, that's where the Frenchies go for a really good meal, Leon. Uh, Interesting stuff. And you said you were putting together an article to appear on our website about this. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm putting together a, a little quiz, which has a, a few more for this so people can play along. Fantastic. There you have it, listeners. Check out that article on our website for some great knowledge about French towns and cities. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Emma. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back with more next week. <laughs> <laughs>